Hello and welcome to Instant Transmission, a podcast where we discuss everything Dragon Ball and why a true ninja wears fishnets. Tonight, we'll continue young Goku's journey through the original Dragon Ball series. With the amazing 21st World Martial Arts Tournament behind us, Goku continues his adventure in pursuit of the four-star Dragon Ball as we cover the next saga, the Red Ribbon Army Arc. I'm your host, Dayton, and once again, I'm joined by my co-host, Todd. Hi! And normally, we try to follow Konsenshu's guide to the story arcs in Dragon Ball, but due to the 39-episode behemoth that would have left us with, we'll be using the Dragon Ball Wiki as a guideline to help break up the Red Ribbon Saga. Tonight's episodes cover Dragon Ball episodes 29 through 42. Though the saga does officially cover through episode 45, Todd and I felt the story would be told better on our podcast if we ended just a few episodes earlier. And with all of that covered, um, was there anything you wanted to mention before we got down and dirty with the Red Ribbon Army? No, I think it's time to get down and dirty. All right. Well, episode 29, this saga begins with another adventure, The Roaming Lake. And yeah, this saga begins immediately after the conclusion of the World Martial Arts Tournament. Roshi recommends the boys take some time off and relax and enjoy life a little. But um, yeah, the boys are not really happy with that. And they're begging Roshi to do some training. Yeah, they are. They're more excited than ever to get stronger. So Roshi's gambit joining the tournament as Jackie Chung kind of paid off here. And it basically we end up with Goku deciding that he's going to leave because Master Roshi tells them that they need to kind of figure out their own training. And so Goku's going to go and find his grandfather's four-star Dragon Ball. Yeah, and there's kind of a a breaking up of the band at this point where Roshi and Krillin kind of head off to do their own thing. We get Oolong, Poir, Yamcha, and Bulma deciding that they're going to head to West City. And Goku's hopping on Nimbus and going off in his own direction. So at this point, the everyone is going and doing their own thing. Yeah, and we basically get to see Goku fly off into the desert. Uh, he He's given the dragon radar by Balma as kind of like a parting gift, where Balma says that she no longer needs it because she now has her boyfriend. And Goku uses the dragon radar, following it into the desert, and the first person that he comes across is a familiar face in Nam. Yeah, and we see Nam returning to his village with the dino cap that Master Roshi had gifted him. And he unveils just two giant colossal containers of water. But he even mentions that this is only a temporary fix because the nearby river that once supported the land near their village is completely dried up. So they're in trouble at this point, even though they did get something out of the tournament. Right. And so they believe that their their solution to the problem is to find what they call this roaming lake. Uh, and so Nam leaves to see if he can find the lake or find the source of water somewhere nearby. And he ends up getting attacked, uh, snatched up by a pterodactyl. And this is the point where Goku runs into him and saves him from the pterodactyl, slamming it in the head with his power pole. Yeah, it's. I think it's kind of comical that whenever there's just a random bad guy, for some reason they like to pull the old pterodactyl out of the hat. 
Yeah, it's always like this evil pterodactyl <laughs> with this kind of like gruff sounding voice like, hey, kid, get out of here. I love it. <laughs> so, yeah, after Goku res- rescues Nam, uh, they decide to travel together and kind of go down the riverbed and figure out what is keeping the water from flowing down the river and drying everything up. And I would like to note that Nam is able to ride on the Nimbus. I I enjoyed that. Yeah, it's a great little detail, right? And they almost kind of pass over it pretty quickly. But I think Nam is the only other person that we've seen besides Goku who's been able to ride on it. Does that sound right? Yeah, that does sound right. And it really proves that Nam's intentions for the World Martial Arts Tournament were pure from the get-go. Yeah, yeah, he's clearly a good guy. And fortunately for Nam, they do find the source of the water being literally damned because the Giran's people they find out have dammed up the water source with rocks using their merry-go-round gum and we get to see kind of this expanded world lore of Giran and kind of multiple Giran's but Giran from the tournament seems to be like the head honcho or the strong guy around in this village and we get kind of a tense moment between Goku, Nam, and the pterodactyl people. But Giren actually kind of clears up the air and shows Goku some respect. And he reveals that this gum that's gumming up the river, it's something that's impossible to break and that they weren't even the ones that constructed this dam. And Goku offers to go ahead and just break the dam loose himself. Yeah, so Goku heads down to the dam and he charges up a signature Kamehameha and with really little effort beyond that, breaks the dam free and Giren and his comrades are shocked that it was able to be destroyed so easily. Yeah, and we see water being restored to the river. It's almost like plant life is just kind of jumping back into existence with the the water pouring down the river's path and everything seems great for like five seconds and that's when we see a desert storm is rolling in at this exact moment yeah and so goku kind of makes his way i think tries to take nam back to the village at this point and they end up finding this roaming lake and i'll be honest my notes for this episode were a little bit sparse because it felt a little bit fillery for me so i don't remember what they did with the storm do you remember what that part was um it's they pretty much take shelter from the storm and after it blows over it that's where the roaming lake is revealed and all the village's problems are pretty much solved at this point um i even have a note in here that says that this is a very confusing episode it's kind of hard to follow what what exactly is going on I kind of felt the same at the tail end there, which is why I think my notes didn't cover it very well. Uh, But the general gist of the episode is that Goku helps Nam save his village, solving the water problem. And that kind of wraps up Nam's story arc, gives us a little bit of resolution there. Yeah, it is. It is a little fillery, but it does follow one of the characters that we at least know. And it gave an ending to him, just like you said. So it's it's fine if. If we want to do filler this way, this is the correct way to do filler. It at least there's at least some meaning to it. That's a fair point. It it at least puts a nice neat little bow on Nam's story rather than leaving that as a hanging thread. 
And so I believe that takes us straight into episode 30, which is Pilaf and the Mysterious Army. And uh, right away, we are kind of hinted at a new character who gives me some bad guy vibes as he's sitting down looking like a businessman, smoking a cigar. And uh, yeah, it's just kind of a quick scene, but it's kind of alluding to this person's going to be kind of a big deal in the future. Right. We can definitely tell that this episode is setting up our next big bad and our next story arc. And we quickly cut from there to a slightly more familiar villain (laughs) in Pilaf as he's having a nightmare of the giant ape form of Goku destroying his palace. And he wakes up kind of screaming and yelling. And we find that he's in a new palace of sorts. Uh, And Shu kind of runs in, waking him up, stating that they found a Dragon Ball on their radar. Yeah, and it's not just a new palace. It is a floating fortress. So it is way more than, I guess, what he was living in earlier. So, I mean, don't fret. You've upgraded. Yeah, the scene kind of zooms out as Pilaf opens up the window. And you can tell now that he's in this flying fortress. And it's... I mean, it's it's extravagant. It looks like all these different pieces of like mechanical parts pieced together on this giant flying orb. It's pretty it's pretty spiffy looking. <laughs> but yeah, uh, we flip back over after being reintroduced to Pilaf to Goku kind of continuing along his adventure. And he decides to take like a nice leisurely swim in a forest lake. A young bandit kind of lurking nearby decides to steal Goku's belongings while he swims in this lake. And during kind of the chaos of Goku getting out, finding out that all of his stuff is gone, Goku jumps on his Nimbus and begins searching for the bandit. And I thought this was clever. He's able to pinpoint the bandit's location by telling the power pole that the bandit had stolen to extend until Goku can figure out where the bandit is. Yeah, I liked that. That was a we continue to see as kind of ignorant as Goku is. He's very crafty and creative when he needs to be, especially when it comes to combat. So I I liked that a lot, too. But Goku basically ends up flying down to where the power pole is. He ends up finding his power pole, uh, but not finding the culprit, the culprit having dashed away already and still having some of his other belongings, I believe, including the dragon radar. Yeah, and this is where we see this young bandit fleeing towards a nearby town. And this nearby town, I believe we get some shots of some military men who are in this town kind of causing trouble, kicking down doors and even taking people hostage. They're looking for the Dragon Balls. And so we kind of have this uh, this new entity that we haven't seen yet being introduced. And because they're looking for the Dragon Balls, they are in a crash course collision with Goku at this point. Right. And we then kind of cut over to the boy who stole from Goku. And he arrives at basically a pawn shop where he's trying to sell the Dragon Radar And the merchant at the pawn shop is going to give him basically pennies for it. He's giving him, I think it's 10 zenny or something. 
completely ripping the boy off for this high-tech gadget, but the boy agrees to it, giving the merchant the radar and uh, goes off to buy himself some food. Yeah, and uh, this is where we get Goku kind of finally tracking down the bandit, recognizing the smell of the bandit, one of Goku's special techniques that um, honestly doesn't come up outside of uh, Dragon Ball, something I've noticed. No, so, that's a good point. Um, so he uses, follows his nose, tracks down the bandit, and the bandit very quickly points out that he sold it to a pawn shop and Goku is sent in that direction. But at the same time, in this pawn shop, we see a certain Emperor Pilaf who's being shopped around and shown uh, immaculate crowns and all sorts of things. And this pawn shop merchant is just trying to fleece Emperor Pilaf for everything he has. Oh, yeah, he's he's putting on the charm. He's very, uh, very much talking Pilaf up, talking him up as an emperor. And he wants to sell him a crown. And he eventually reveals a Dragon Ball to Pilaf. And Pilaf dishes out the dough, just a ton of money, to purchase this Dragon Ball. And so Pilaf exits the shop only to run into perfectly timed Goku arriving at the shop looking for his belongings. Yes. And we get this kind of awkward exchange where Pilaf says he purchased the Dragon Ball fair and square. And quite frankly, he did. He showed up. He bought it. That's his property. So this is the first time I'm on Pilaf's side. But Goku not taking that as an answer decides he's getting that Dragon Ball back from Pilaf. And that's when we get this kind of kooky chase scene where Goku starts chasing after Pilaf. Pilaf is sprinting back towards his ship. Goku, on his way out of the pawn shop, notices the dragon radar and kind of grabs it while he's starting his pursuit. Yeah, and this is a... I thought this was a funny exchange here because, like you said, Pilaf's in the right here. He rightfully purchased this ball. Goku (laughs) has no claim to it. And so they get into the Pilaf gang gets into their flying fortress and they take off and Goku takes off after them on the Nimbus and Pilaf inside the ship eventually ends up dropping the ball and it shatters. And so they realize that they've been duped by this merchant, that this was a fake Dragon Ball. And then they quickly begin to glue it back together. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So I think uh, I think that about wraps up that episode, unless I'm missing something here. The only thing they basically show that the merchant has a bin of fake Dragon Balls. And then the very tail end is the there is a real ball there, which was tracked by the dragon radar, but it was carried off by a bird inside of a nest atop the merchant's store. And that's, that's right. Yep. So everyone's being led to the correct location, but they're being given a not the right thing. Yeah. And so basically the audience is aware of this, but uh, our characters searching for the balls are unaware. Okay, yeah, and I mean, honestly, I thought that was a fairly fun episode, and it got us where we were going, so I'm pretty happy with that one. 
yeah, I think it does a good job of kicking off the the new story and giving us an idea as to what the conflict is going to be moving forward. But uh, that leads us into episode 31, which is GG, a fake Goku appears. And uh, I'm going to let you know right now, there's a lot of flipping back and forth in this episode. Yeah, it, it is a whole lot. Uh, I think the very start here is Pilaf trying to pawn off this fake Dragon Ball that's been glued back together to Goku. And it is, in fact, the four-star ball that Goku's been looking for. Uh, however, Goku kind of drops it as he's flying away, as the palace, the flying fortress moves away from him. And as he goes to catch it, it falls into pieces in his hands. So at this point, it's pretty obvious to, well, everyone, that this Dragon Ball is fake. So everybody's been kind of led on a wild goose chase at this point. Yeah, and here's the first kind of part where we flip completely to something unrelated. But <laughs> basically, it moves over to Chi-Chi, and she is thinking about planning a wedding with Goku. Yeah, she's kind of doing a little bit of daydreaming. She's kind of head over heels for this young stud. And they decide that um, they're going to use their house psychic to kind of look into Goku and kind of get an idea of when they'll see him again. And they get a very sketchy prediction that Goku will be coming to visit them very soon. And so there's this huge just eruption of excitement. And... uh yeah, the Ox King starts preparing for a wedding. <laughs> yeah, because that makes sense for a twelve-year-old, and I don't. At this point, I don't. I don't know how old Chi Chi is here, but I think she's very close to Goku's age. So they're young. They're really young. Yeah. So it's. I don't know. It kind of blows my mind, but yeah, we've got a a wedding being planned at this point. Everyone's excited, and you want to know who else is excited? Pilaf who comes across the Ox King preparing for the wedding. And when he kind of zooms in and looks at all of them, they see a sign welcoming Goku. And with the Dragon Raider picking up a ball kind of in that area, Pilaf starts hatching a plan to dress up Shu as Goku and attempt to fool the Ox King. This is a very complicated plan. <laughs> so it is pretty complicated the reason that they tracked the dragon ball down here too is that we the audience got to see the bird that was carrying the dragon ball get eaten by a pterodactyl <laughs> that's right and then the ox king use a boulder to take down the pterodactyl because that pterodactyl is going to be the wedding feast so. so, yeah, so now we have the Dragon Ball kind of being with the Ox King, but he doesn't know about it. But Pilaf knows about it. And now Pilaf is going to disguise Shu as Goku to sneak into, well, they don't know it's a wedding, but to sneak into the Ox King's uh, grounds and steal the Dragon Ball right out from under his nose. Right. Uh, while all of this is going on, we've also got the Red Ribbon <laughs> Army looking for the Dragon Ball. And they, while the Pilaf gang is kind of working their way into schmoozing the Dragon Ball out of the Ox King and uh, kind of already going through with this wedding partially, 
the Red Raven army tanks roll up on the Ox King's place and just start blowing buildings up. Uh, and the Ox King is not going to take this sitting down. So he goes out to confront the tanks himself. Yeah. And while that's happening, <laughs> <laughs> we get Goku who kind of stumbles across Titi picking flowers for her bouquet. And after she knocks Goku around with her just ungodly Ox King strength, um, Goku offers her an apple and the two enjoy a nice apple meal together while all this stuff is happening over at the Ox King's palace. Yeah, so the Ox King goes out and he's destroying tank after tank. However, the general here fires some sticky goo in the Ox King's eyes and it allows the rest of his soldiers to capture the Ox King in a net. Uh, at which point we switch over to the Pilaf gang <laughs> where they are pulling the uh, Dragon Ball from the Pterodactyl Feast and escaping using their flying fortress. Yeah, and this is where we kind of get everything, I think, more or less kind of wrapping together. So right at this point, um, yeah, Goku and Chi-Chi notice the smoke from the village in the distance, and they jump on the Nimbus. That's right. Chi-Chi's the other one that can sit on the Nimbus. Um, oh, you're right. Yeah, good point. <laughs> So they jump on the Nimbus and they head back towards the grounds as they see the smoke rising from the Ox King's palace. And yeah, I think it more or less kind of ends right there. Yeah, the Red Ribbon Army is in hot pursuit. Goku and Chi-Chi are in hot pursuit. And like you said, all of this is going to kind of come to a head as these three factions uh, meet one another. And I think that takes us to the next episode. Yes, which is episode 32. It vanished, the flying fortress in the sky. And uh, yeah, the military general shirtless guy, his name is Colonel Silver. We're finally introduced to him. Hey, and he, Colonel Silver, is going to be pursuing Pilaf's flying fortress here. And Goku and Chi-Chi end up freeing the Ox King from Colonel Silver's net trap. And uh, Goku is going to also move in hot pursuit of the Dragon Ball, Pilaf, and the Red Ribbon Army, but now kind of leaving Chi-Chi with her father. Yeah, and we get Goku kind of running out and going to jump on his Nimbus. And I did think that this was funny, that as Goku's leaving, Chi-Chi yells out, what about the wedding? And Goku replies, don't worry, I'll try some of that next time, thinking that it's some sort of food. <laughs> it's very Goku, right? Like, he has no idea what the hell a wedding is. <laughs> <laughs> I got a good chuckle out of that one, but after promising Chi-Chi he'll try some wedding next time, he hops on his Nimbus, and he's in pursuit, and we get uh, Colonel Silver kind of in his fighter jet thing, pursuing this flying fortress through the clouds, and we get this kind of mix-up where they're all diving through the clouds and they lose track of Pilaf's fortress, which blows my mind. How do you lose track of that? I have no idea. It, it's kind of cool getting to see Pilaf do something well for once, though. <laughs> <laughs> you got to give him a win. Yeah, exactly. And he ends up popping up behind Colonel Silver's fighter jet and 
ends up shooting it down. Uh, Colonel Silver gets shot down. However, Colonel Silver ends up calling in reinforcements. Yeah, so as the Red Ribbon Army kind of unleashes all the fighter power that they have to that location, we see Pilaf, um, he has another trick up his sleeve too. We cut to a desert, and we see the Red Ribbon Army kind of circling and kind of looking through the area. And that's where we're kind of hinted at that Pilaf may have hid his fortress under the desert. <laughs> yeah, and we even get a few soldiers being sucked into the sand, go missing. And we find that, in fact, Pilaf does have his fortress underneath the desert. And uh, Goku eventually arrives on the scene, similarly looking for the, the Dragon Ball and the fortress. and. Goku ends up getting caught in one of these traps as well, getting put into another cell similar to the very first arc where Goku and Pilaf interacted. Yeah, and it's at around this point that the Red Ribbon Army catch on to where Pilaf's location is. And so kind of this abrupt battle begins with kind of automated turrets and stuff popping up out of the sand of the desert and firing up at the Red Ribbon Army. But the army's firepower is just insane. And all the defenses that Pilaf had are quickly just dismantled. And so we run into this fight or flight kind of situation where, well, Pilaf decides that he's getting the heck out of here. And so at this point, Pilaf is running through his fortress and he's trying to figure out a way to get out of here. Well, it's at about this time that Goku has broken out of his holding cell, and we get this awkward kind of moment where Pilaf and Goku run into each other in the catacombs of uh, Pilaf's fortress. Yeah, and it's, uh, again, it, it's hearkening back to the, the first arc where this kind of happened the similar way, but Goku chases after them. They throw down a few doors in his path, and uh, as... Pilaf gets their uh, flying fortress back into the air, trying to flee. Uh, the All of the fighter planes from the Red Ribbon Army end up trapping the flying fortress and surrounding it. And then they begin shooting the fortress down, piece, taking it apart, just shot by shot, piece by piece. Yeah, and we have a Goku who doesn't want the Dragon Ball to get away, kind of hitching a ride on the side of Pilaf's ship. And with all the bombing and shooting, the fortress is just basically peppered to death. And we get this kind of fiery explosion where Pilaf and his crew kind of slow, float slowly to the ground in their parachutes and reluctantly hand over the Dragon Ball as they are completely surrounded by soldiers and guns and tanks. But the fate of Goku's kind of left in the air at this point. Quite literally with him hanging from the <laughs> fortress. And Colonel Silver looks like he's going to win the day here. And I think that carries us over to the next episode. Yes, which is episode 33, The Legend of the Dragon. And yeah, we get a pretty brief shot of um Colonel Silver sculpting those perfect abs. Ooh, pumping that iron, getting all sweaty. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We got to have that uh that montage of 
Colonel Silver showing us just what a badass he is. I think this ends up showing us, is this the episode that has the boxing scene too with him at the beginning? I do believe so, yes. With him just beating up a bunch of other boxers. I mean, if you got it, flaunt it. Like, good for that guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is kind of showing us that he he is a badass, at least in terms of normal people. <laughs> yes. So he can he can take down normal soldiers like it's nobody's business. This guy, he's strong. He might be someone to look out for. So keep that in mind. But yeah. we, after that brief scene of kind of showing off the the ambition and the capability of of Colonel Silver, uh, we cut over to a Goku who had barely survived the explosion of Pilaf's fortress ship exploding. And yeah, he was saved just in time by the flying Nimbus, who is now his best friend. I mean, if I had a flying cloud that saved my ass time and time and time again, <laughs> it would be my best friend too. <laughs> you, you're not wrong. And so after kind of recovering, um, Goku awakens and he's having dinner with a bunch of monkeys. <laughs> yes. And he basically saves the monkeys from a uh, predator cat in the jungle. Um, he's, he's still trying to kind of track down the dragon balls. Uh, and we kind of cut over also to a scene briefly with Colonel Silver meeting with Commander Red, who was the character that we saw at the very beginning of this arc. And Commander Red's little, almost demon cat creature pet uh, attacks Silver, and Silver's able to dodge the pet. Uh, and then we basically find that Silver has uh, collected one Dragon Ball and given it to the commander of the Red Ribbon Army, and now is on to find another, which is the Dragon Ball that Goku is also looking for in this jungle with the monkeys. Yeah, so we're kind of weaving some of these stories together right now with uh, Evil Businessman employing uh, Colonel Silver. And Colonel Silver, I don't believe, I believe they mentioned that he's never failed to accomplish his mission. So he's a pretty reliable, stubborn man at the very least. Yes, and Silver and his men end up finding the same kind of jungle area where they find these monkeys and they find that these monkeys have another dragon ball. And so silver commands his men to take down these monkeys, uh, destroy their forest or their jungle. And they, they start taking flamethrowers and guns to the monkeys into the forest uh, just trying to track down whichever one of them is holding on to this ball. Yeah, and with kind of all the wildlife fleeing and every monkey being held at gunpoint for their Dragon Balls, um, it eventually does get Goku's attention, who confronts the army. And after a brief exchange, we get the Dragon Ball being dropped into a river, kind of in the brief conflict. Yes, and so... The in the middle of all this conflict, uh, kind of the the namesake for this episode, we cut over to Master Roshi speaking with Krillin and Launch, 
and Master Roshi is explaining the lore behind the Dragon Balls. And he begins to explain that there was once upon a time just a single giant Dragon Ball that was discovered by an ancient tribe who built a shrine around it. And the tribe placed the ball in a dragon sculpture inside of its mouth. However, thieves tried to steal the ball. And so the ball was separated to prevent thieves from attempting to steal it and gain its power and gain the wishes from it. Uh, and that's how we got our seven smaller dragon balls. And the legend says that one day a hero will use the dragon balls for good and bring peace to the world once more. Hmm. Feels like we were almost there. Yeah, almost. And then Oolong <laughs> wished for panties. Yeah, close enough. I don't know. Maybe those panties will bring peace. Who knows? I, I mean, they saved the world, kind of. Yeah, peace panties. Yeah, peace panties. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that was... I thought that was super fun. I love kind of legend and myth and the way something like that can make a world feel just more fleshed out. You know, it it's really interesting to me. Uh, I'm trying to like compare it in my mind to the lore that we know later on from Dragon Ball Z and Dragon Ball Super. And I'm trying to think if it matches all of the lore, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess we know that the Namekians created the Dragon Balls. We don't know if they at one point made a set that was just one giant ball. It kind of sounds almost like the uh, the Super Dragon Balls, like the giant planet size. Oh, yeah, it really does. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I don't know. It's fun. I mean, it doesn't affect anything. It's just a myth. So, yeah, and that's I mean, true, too. It, it, and this is the kind of stuff that myths are made of. So I love hearing it. I think it's fun. Also, we get a shot of Krillin continuing to train with Master Roshi. That's great. I love it. Yeah, that's some good world building there. But I think beyond that, the episode pretty much ends in a literal cliffhanger with Goku saving one of the monkeys, but dropping the ball into the river, which kind of takes us to the next episode. Yes, which is Dragon Ball episode 34, the Heartless Red Ribbon. And yeah, we get this kind of flip to a scene where uh everyone's hiding from this thunderstorm it's pretty much stopping the red ribbon army from searching it's stopping goku from leaving and doing anything so everything's kind of put on pause for a moment yeah and as that kind of comes to a close i don't goku... believe they show goku saving the monkey or getting out of the ravine it is just they are gone they they got out of there <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it is a, a little bit of a weird transition or a cut. Uh, also, the the Red Ribbon Army just kind of leaves Goku and the monkeys alone at that point. I guess they're more worried about the Dragon Ball than some kid and some monkey, but whatever. I mean, they're getting wet. You don't want to be out there when you're getting wet. That's true. I mean, priorities. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're right. They did see the Dragon Ball go into the river, and Goku is just some kid in the wood with monkeys. So if they know where the Dragon Ball's at, they're not going to fuss with the, the forest anymore. Right. And so they kind of split ways. Eventually, Goku ends up finding the Dragon Ball that went down the river using his Dragon Radar. And he finds it between some rocks where some Red Ribbon soldiers are searching as well. And the Red Ribbon soldiers try to force him to give the Dragon Ball to them. 
And he swiftly kicks the shit out of them. <laughs> he literally Neo dodged some bullets in this scene. So it's important that we note that because he's freaking Neo, man. That's a good point. And honestly, that's a good point in showing just his progression and power, right? Because in the past, he's been, I mean, he's been shot by bullets and it, it doesn't, it hurts him, but it doesn't necessarily phase him. But he's at the point where he can just dodge guns. <laughs> yeah, Goku's the real deal at this point. And so... I guess you could say the Master Roshi training uh, techniques seem to be working. Yeah, yeah, he's it's nice to see his power kind of scaling over time, even though that gets a little crazy later. But beside the point now. Uh, And so Goku ends up flying away with the Dragon Ball in hand on his Nimbus cloud. Uh, However, he flies right past Colonel Silver. And Colonel Silver, being told that Goku has the Dragon Ball, takes out a rocket launcher (laughs) and fires it at him. (laughs) Yes. And with this rocket just flying towards Goku, um, we see what looks like the death of the Nimbus cloud as it explodes and Goku is knocked from the sky. Yeah, and this is a big deal. We haven't seen anything that has, I guess, impacted the flying Nimbus at this point. Uh, and it it seemed like the rocket blew Nimbus to pieces. Uh, and Goku's pretty upset about it. And this turns into our first fight with Colonel Silver and Goku. Yeah, and we get Silver just demanding that Goku basically give over all the good stuff, the radar, the Dragon Balls, all that sort of thing. and. Goku being, I mean, pissed off at this point, basically tells him to go kick rocks. And we get Silver, who's been sweaty and working out for a long time, attempting to attack Goku, but his blows are easily dodged. Yeah, Goku delivers a few blows of his own, uh, even to the point where he knocks Silver down and then walks away from him and continues to dodge Silver's attacks while walking away from him, his back facing Colonel Silver. Yeah, Goku is completely uninterested at this point. It's Silver's not even worth his time. And kind of the coup de grace to the fight is Goku whipping Silver across the face with his tail. And with that, Silver is defeated. Yeah, completely KO'd. This is, I mean, like you said, Silver wasn't even worth Goku's time. This is pretty excellent. And we've, I mean, we got our little training montage from Silver. We know that he's no slouch, but uh, not on Goku's level. Yeah, and and with all the soldiers and their commander all pretty much defeated, Goku just walks into a Red Ribbon storage facility, something like that, and just grabs a whole heap of dino caps and just starts throwing them to figure out like one of these has to get me out of here. Right. I love this. The first one that he throws is this robot and it basically is asking him what he wants. And he's like, Hey, I want to, I need to travel to go find this dragon ball. And the robot's like, all right, throw this dino capsule. It has a plane in it. Goku's like, I can't fly a plane. The robot's like, I can. (laughs) And just like that, Goku has, a freaking robot assistant and an airplane. That's a hell of an upgrade, if you ask me. Yeah, it's wild. And <laughs> I mean, Goku doesn't know anything about technology. So just this kind of pairing of this robot and this plane with Goku in it is really comical to me. <laughs> but 
Um, this is a very short-lived, uh, I guess, experience because pretty much almost immediately after getting into the plane and flying off, we get Goku kind of entering this cold environment where he starts getting cold and freezing up and uh, the robot doesn't feel cold, but we do see everything kind of lock up and the plane kind of crash from the sky. And we are pretty much left there with Goku being dragged off into the mountains. Yeah, we don't really get to see. It looks like there might be some girl that's dragging him. And we do see that the Red Ribbon Army is still searching for him in this now incredibly cold and snowy environment. Uh, and that'll take us, I think, to the next episode. Oh, I do have one more note. Uh, oh, yeah. Colonel Silver is disgraced and kicked out of the Red Ribbon Army for his failures. That's right. They they almost go through that really, really quickly. Uh, they, they almost make it seem like they're going to kill Colonel Silver, but then he just walks out. Yeah, so we kind of have this, at this point, this is just a loose end. And I don't know, I don't know if we'll encounter Colonel Silver again or not, but he's he's out there. Yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll have to see if he actually comes back later on. But I think that takes us to the next episode. Yes, episode thirty-five, "The Girl of the North." Snow, S N O. I didn't realize that's how that was spelled. Okay. <laughs> I, I think they added an extra letter. I think in the English dub, it, they pronounce it Suno. They do. <laughs> well, that's not yeah. confusing or anything. <laughs> yeah. The, the English dub and the Japanese have the names are slightly different. Okay. So Snow or Suno um, both mean the same thing. So bear that in mind going forward. Yeah. <laughs> and But yeah, we get... um. The Red Ribbon Army kind of mobilizing and looking for Goku in this plane. And they come across the crash. And they also come across the tracks left behind from Goku being dragged from the crash site. And at the same time, a blizzard starts rolling in. So we get Goku being dragged through the mountains. We get the Red Ribbon Army kind of knowing the direction they need to go, and we get this blizzard rolling in. So we've got three things all happening at once right off the bat. Right. And fortunately for Goku, this girl dragging him pulls him out of the blizzard and into her home, at which place we are introduced to Snow or Suno, and she shows Goku to her mother, uh, where they then set Goku out by the fire to thaw him out. Uh, and they are they were both worried that he was dead at this point, but fortunately, Goku has a high constitution. Yes, and some hot cocoa and a very obviously thirsty uh, redheaded girl that's kind of fawning over him. Yeah, she's she's excited, I think, to have another kid in the village is what she says. And she wants to play with him. Mm, uh, mm -hmm. We get the impression that there are not many children here. <laughs> yeah. And it's at this point they begin talking and Goku uh, reveals that he's in pursuit of the Dragon Balls. And this causes the Suno and her mother to both kind of recoil. And they ask if he's working with the Red Ribbon Army. So they're here, and they've been terrorizing this village. Yeah, and I think that they reveal that the villagers have been conscripted by the army, or more so forced by the army, 
to search for the Dragon Ball, including Snow's father. Yeah, and it's about this time that we see that the Red Ribbon Army has followed the tracks that Suno and Goku had left behind all the way to their village. And we see them enter the town and start bullying around villagers, demanding the location of the young boy who crashed the plane. We also find out that the uh, Red Ribbon Army has taken the village chief hostage to keep the village compliant with all of their demands. Right. And the Red Ribbon Army is not, they're not passive about their demands. They are shooting up these households and they eventually get to Snow's house and the mother and Snow tell Goku to hide. And he says, oh, I got to use the bathroom. And so <laughs> something that happens a lot. Goku is hungry and also Goku needs to use the bathroom. He's a simple boy, <laughs> you know. I mean, everyone can relate to those things, at least. That's true. I (laughs) frequently eat and use the bathroom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a deep character right there. (laughs) (sighs) And so these soldiers uh, burst into the home. They're looking for this kid that we know to be Goku. And Suno and her mother lie to the soldiers, saying it's just the two of them there. And then we hear a flush from the bathroom. <laughs> I did find that funny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the timing's perfect, and it's very Goku to do something like that, right? He's like, oh, I've used the bathroom. I better flush it. <laughs> At least he's being considerate. That's true. But unfortunately, <laughs> the Red Ribbon soldiers are not quite as considerate. Yeah. And they line up their guns in the bathroom that Goku is in, and they just unload. They don't even open the door. They don't even... <laughs> They don't knock. They don't do anything. They just start blasting. I mean, this is this is showing us what type of men are the soldiers in the Red Ribbon Army. They're just going to shoot and murder a 12-year-old boy without a second thought. Yeah, and I have a, actually have a note on that later that just says, I can't believe how many people are willing to shoot a child in this show. Oh, my I God. Mean, <laughs> I, I, that's a good point, because... Balma kind of did the same thing, so... Yeah, I guess you're right. As far as morality, mileage may vary. (laughs) Yeah, but I... I, Whereas the... Whereas Balma shooting Goku, I think, was more of a gag and also a way to show how strong Goku is, I think the intent here is to show the themes that the Red Ribbon Army are evil assholes. They absolutely are, and... After being shot while on the porcelain throne, the door creaks open and we see a very perturbed Goku who quickly dispatches these troublemaking soldiers. And it's at this point that Goku just promises to free their village chief who's being held up in a fortified fortress called Muscle Tower. So after attempting to brave the snow once, Goku is given some winter clothing and his march begins. Yes, so Goku arrives near Muscle Tower where he runs into one of the tanks from the Red Ribbon Army and multiple soldiers, as well as a tank armed with a machine gun. And he basically attacks these soldiers, beating up several of them, dodging the machine gun, getting beneath the tank, uh, and just taking out the tank as well as the soldiers 
swiftly without much effort at all. <laughs> yeah, it takes Goku about 10 seconds to dispatch an entire armored convoy. So it's, or patrol, I guess I should say. But yeah, it it's pretty much nothing. And once Goku dispatches them, he just continues on towards Muscle Tower. Yeah, he he gets to the base of the tower, rushing it, blocking bullets from the soldiers with his power pole, which is a super cool shot, by the way. Oh, this and... whole shot at the end here is fantastic. But the oh, blocking yeah. the bullets and then he does the extending the power pole and just the animation for the sweep, knocking out like three soldiers all at once looked fantastic. It's so good. I love this <laughs> shot. Right, because it's visceral. It's not anything too over the top. It's just a greatly animated clobbering some folks with a stick. And this this is so different from the action that we've gotten prior to this in Dragon Ball 2, where some of, I mean, in the first arc, a lot of the action is kind of goofy and slapstick. And then in the second arc with the tournament, it's a lot of one-on-one -on -one fights. It's this powerful guy or a girl against this powerful guy or girl and just duking it out. But this is a very powerful child against an army of <laughs> armed men. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting because this is the first time that I think, well, I guess fighting Pilaf was about the same as far as fighting a truly evil opponent. But I don't, yeah. I don't even know if he, Pilaf, is he purely evil or is he just like a spoiled child? I can't tell. It's a little bit of both with Pilaf, I would say. But I, I think this is different from Pilaf, if only because the way that the Red Ribbon Army is treated in the story versus the way that Pilaf and his gang are treated in the story, where they are, Pilaf is treated more like, yeah, he's evil, but he's kind of goofy and he's never really going to get his way. Whereas the Red Ribbon Army feels like a legitimate threat. Yeah, they're an actual operation and they're serious, like you were saying, whereas Pilaf's doing childish shenanigans. So there's kind of this two kids, I guess, doing childish things with the Pilaf stuff. With here, it's no, like we we have a mission. We're just going to shoot this kid. We're not messing around. There's no elaborate you know, holding you in this cell and sending you through pinball hallways or anything like that. It's just, nope, just shoot, shoot the kid with a gun. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the, the stakes have definitely risen here. And as Goku kind of beats up the entry soldiers to this tower, he uses his power pole to get up to the second floor. And I think our closing scene for the episode is seeing General White awaits mm -hmm. in the top of the tower. Yes, and that leads us into episode 36, The Terror of Muscle Tower. And uh, General White actually just invites Goku to find the chief, who he says is at the top of the tower. And as soon as Goku opens the first door into the tower, he's met by a gang of soldiers who are just arrogantly approaching Goku, not even like treating him as a threat at all. Yeah, and it's it's I think it's a, a group of three or four guys and we've got like a guy with a knife. I think a couple of them might have guns, but they're not really using them. Goku dispatches them without a second thought, just very little effort. We get to see Goku breaking out a little after image just for a little flare. 
Yeah, and it's cool to see him kind of casually using a technique that he learned in the previous arc. It's a good callback. Mm -hmm. So it's it's just another one of those little examples that Goku is getting better. He's learning. It's his techniques are being, I guess, refined a little bit more. Exactly. And that pretty much moves him from the second floor to the third floor. And I do want to point out here, too, that this to me is almost like the quintessential shonen anime progress of our protagonist has to fight their way through the minions up to the boss. <laughs> and this is like a literal a literal interpretation of it with the muscle tower of like getting through each floor to get to the final boss on the top floor. I was going to say, I was thinking like a, like a video game the entire time where it's just, you've got the, all the mini bosses before you get to the main boss sort of thing. Yeah. I love it. I'm totally here for it. And <laughs> I think dragon ball, if not the originator of this trope, definitely was one of the first anime to really popularize it. Well, when Goku goes up to the third floor, we get the most metal-sounding boss ever, Metallitron. <laughs> yes, and I, I had to look up this guy's name because Major Metallitron sounded... Awesome. I mean, <laughs> awesome and ridiculous to me. So, but his... He's in Muscle Tower. It works. It fits. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, his Japanese name is... Uh not any less ridiculous it's sergeant metallic <laughs> <laughs> oh that's great well metallitron works i think the best in english because they made him sound like arnold schwarzenegger and it is hilarious i mean he's 100 percent got the schwarzenegger persona mm -hmm. right like and <laughs> dragon ball came out in the the mid to late 80s i actually looked up the uh the dates where the first Terminator movie came out in 1985 and this episode came out in 1986. So this guy is 100% an Arnold Schwarzenegger reference. <laughs> At least in the English version. I don't, it, it, do you think he was in the, the Japanese version? Oh, 100%. Just look at his appearance, man. Like the, the glasses, his build. <laughs> like he is totally a Terminator ripoff, uh, and I love it. Sometimes I'm not sure if I want to see it or if it's that's ex exactly what it is. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I mean, we're going to get to uh, one of the other robots later on has some clear uh, influences. Those are so. even more obvious somehow. Um, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but anyway, um, Arnold, I mean, Metallitron is this giant <laughs> hulking brute wearing sunglasses and this is going to be Goku's, I guess, first boss fight in Muscle Tower. And we get a quick exchange where Goku just does his typical I'm going to punch you and it's going to be awesome and Metallitron's knocked over. But this is the first time in a long time where Goku used a serious punch and it didn't fell his foe. Yeah. And Goku does this multiple times, multiple punches, multiple kicks, knocks the guy down time and time again. However, Metallotron keeps getting back up and eventually gets his hands on Goku and tries to crush him. Uh, and I think Goku is just barely able to break free. Uh, and I mean, has to resort to something a little bit more drastic here. Yeah, and it, at this point, they're really starting to hint at what Metallotron really is. We see him kind of stand up, and behind his sunglasses, we see red eyes kind of flash. And then at 
some point we even get like a Metallotron POV or point of view where it's almost like he's locking in on Goku and there's like numbers popping up. So it's starting to become obvious that Metallotron, he's not a normal dude. So I wanted to make a note about this because I paused it on that screen where it has the readout from Metallotron's point of view and his scanner actually on there in English indicates that Goku is an alien, which Does I thought it? Was, I never caught that. Holy I, crap. I paused it because it had a bunch of text up there. And I was like, I wonder what that says. And it specifically says Goku is an alien. And I was like, holy shit. Okay. Wow. I didn't realize the seeds were planted that long ago. Holy crap. I didn't think they were, honestly, but uh, and maybe it was something that was edited over by the Funimation team later. I'm not really I sure. I hope not. I really hope not, because that yeah. would be fantastic if it wasn't. It's a really cool little seed and nod to the future. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And so, wow, that just blew my mind. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, once it's kind of obvious that Metaltron is not a person, but more likely a machine. Uh, we see him open his mouth and fire a key blast from his mouth, which is one of my favorite things in Dragon Ball. I love it when things do that. I love that too, honestly. Uh, I think he, at that point, blows up the wall and Goku is just barely able to dodge Metalatron, kind of thinking that he's destroyed Goku with that blast. And Goku responds in kind with a Kamehameha. Yeah, and... I mean, I will say all the Kamehameha's so far have felt at least fairly special. And this one looked pretty good, I think, too. I'm going to judge every Kamehameha wave, by the way. Um, down. Yeah, and um, it, this isn't the best Kamehameha wave, but it was pretty good. And the after effect, I think, was pretty awesome, where we see Metalatron's head completely blown from his shoulders. And... We get kind of this brief pause where Goku's panicking. He thought he just killed this guy. He doesn't really understand what a machine is. So, but after the pause, we see Metalatron kind of, kind of get back up and lurch forward and keep going after Goku. Yeah, he's ready to keep fighting. I think one of the cool things about this too, like you said, with the after effect of him just missing his head, we don't see that happen with the Kamehameha very often. I th one of the only other times that I can think of is when Cell gets his whole upper body blown away. So it's, it's pretty cool to see the visceral power behind the Kamehameha in this moment. It feels great, especially against such a, at this point, a really strong opponent that Goku's been struggling with. Yeah, 100%. And the this unstoppable force of Metalatron ends up attacking Goku again. We get a really, I love this, but a rocket punch yes. from Metallatron. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The good old classic robot rocket punch works every time. <laughs> oh, man. I love this. I also just want to point out that this gets uh, mirrored by Android 16. I was going to point the... that out, too. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, give me give me more rocket punches. I'm all here for it. Uh, and I think Goku, after getting plowed by the rocket punch, uses his power pole to pierce where Metallotron's heart should be, which I thought was really interesting. Like, in my mind, I was just thinking, is this Goku trying to be lethal? Like, literally trying to kill this person or creature or whatever? I kind of thought the same thing. I kind of, I guess, just 
guess that Goku was not really sure what Metalatron was. So is he alive? Is he dead? Like, he doesn't have a head. Can he not have a heart? I don't know how this thing works. I'm going to kind of poke it and prod it until I figure out what makes it tick. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. And Goku, the power pole still not working. Metalatron still coming in hard. Goku ends up leaping forward, using his head to plow right through the metal man's chest. And Metalatron seems like he's still going to keep going and then eventually stops moving. <laughs> Turns out the last time they had changed his battery was last spring. So <laughs> he's all out of juice. And yeah, he's got with Go that, the, the battle with Metalatron is finally over and the next floor awaits Goku. And we get a hint as at what the next floor will probably contain. Yes, and I wanted to make a note about this episode, especially after watching Dragon Ball Super, where Whis tells Goku that he is too cocky when he fights, that he frequently lets his guard down. It happens multiple times in this fight, which I like a lot because this stays consistent with Goku's character throughout Dragon Ball through Dragon Ball Z and Dragon Ball Super. So I really like that character trait in him. That's true. And yeah, Ninja Man, or as the show calls him, Murasaki is going to be Goku's next uh, opponent. And that enters an episode 37. Enter Ninja Murasaki. <laughs> so this is our fourth floor. Goku clearing floors two and three at this point. And Murasaki is going to be the next boss fight. And Do, okay, you want to know how sometimes the show can shatter your expectations? Murasaki yes. definitely shatters my expectations. I'm, I'm <laughs> going to go ahead and just lay that out there. Um, I mean, it begins it's... with this kind of monologue from Murasaki where he says he's a messenger of death, swift as the wind, and utterly lethal. And we get, I think we get a couple of shots of like kind of flashbacks almost of Murasaki being just that. And we get to see Goku walking into this floor of complete darkness and being attacked multiple times with shuriken and kunai and Goku having to dodge out of the way, just kind of barely sensing where these attacks are coming from. Uh, and having dodged all of the initial assault, Murasaki turns the lights on to reveal this lush forest inside of Muscle Tower on the fourth floor. Yeah, and it's at this point that Murasaki kind of announces himself and challenges Goku. And we get this battle between Goku and Murasaki where the ninja, he does not reveal himself. He kind of strikes from the, the sides and shadows, and he's not really looking to exchange blows with Goku. Right. And Goku's keeping an eye on where these attacks are coming from as Murasaki's dashing between the trees. And Goku just casually picks up a rock, keeping an eye out. And chucks it, hitting Murasaki <laughs> right in the head. <laughs> yeah. Um, after hitting Murasaki with a rock, uh, Goku goes to the location where he expects to find Murasaki, but instead finds a Master Roshi-level photo of a girl on the ground. And there's this brief bickering between Murasaki and Goku about how it's Murasaki's property and that Goku shouldn't steal it. 
<laughs> yeah, Murasaki, I think, reveals himself to take the photo. And then he basically begins playing games with Goku as he tries to hide under a fake rock telling Goku to count to 30. <laughs> so just to show you my roller coaster of emotions, my first note is the messenger of death, swift as the wind and utterly lethal. I'm pumped to see Goku fight another trained warrior. Then this stuff happened and I said, I'm getting less pumped. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah. It's, I mean, it's fun. Um, but I really wanted to see like Goku fight like another trained martial artist who was kind of looking to like actually deal lethal damage to him. I really wanted to see it. Yeah, I can't really argue with you there because I, I love that sort of fight. But this is very Toriyama. This is very much the way that he likes to subvert expectations where he did. I, I mean, I think you and I here both kind of fell, fall into his trap where he's like, Ah, Murasaki, I'm a super powerful ninja and I have all of this training to assassinate people. And I am kind of a goofball and just play ninja <laughs> games. Yes. And games they play as they play hide and seek. Um, they play like tag. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Uh, Murasaki hides beneath a fake rock. He hides behind a sheet on a tree and ends up having it the wrong direction. And it's an American flag on one side. Which you got to have those two things on the same sheet, right? This is my one side camo tree, other side American. Actually, that checks out. Yeah, I would have that. It makes sense to me. But <laughs> I think he even says something about like his mother put the was supposed to put the tree pattern on both sides or something. <laughs> <That's> right, <yeah. laughs> and then he eventually, like while playing hide and seek, Murasaki hides in the water and Goku has to find him. And he just hears the sound of murasaki breathing through a reed in the water and then he pours boiling hot water down the reed which is the reasonable response <laughs> I, yeah i mean it's it's great like i don't think that murasaki would be talking after that no no that would be horrible especially because it might go straight into your lungs <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you'd probably, I mean, I don't know if that's a, that's a great way to hurt somebody, but then it turns into a foot race between Murasaki and Goku. Yes, but Murasaki plays dirty, so he uses caltrops to keep Goku from catching him. So Goku runs over to a nearby bathroom where he saw wooden sandals and puts those on, and now he can race with Murasaki. <laughs> He's, uh, I, I mean, as goofy as it is, this is again showing Goku's ingenuity. I also wanted to point out here that right before the race, Murasaki in the English dub calls Goku Little Tortoise, which I thought was just very appropriate and fun. <laughs> it is part of his origin at this point, so I do love it. Yeah, and he's got the turtle symbol on his gi, so I thought this was a pretty fun nod to that. Uh, but Goku, with these shoes, beats Murasaki in at foot speed. And so this uh, at this point, Murasaki's angry, and he just tries to attack Goku with his sword. Yes, he draws his, his samurai sword underhanded like a true ninja and leaps into the air, ready to strike Goku, who is also prepared 
but he's prepared by sticking his power pole into the ground and just stepping back and watching Murasaki land on top of it and literally getting the power pole stuck in his butt. Yes, Murasaki literally gets shafted here. Yes, uh, and he's running around like a dog and Goku's just laughing and <laughs> it's an episode. All this stuff happens. I'm not gonna lie, the 12-year-old in me was laughing at Murasaki with the stick in his butt, uh, especially when <laughs> Goku goes to grab the stick and yanks it out of his butt as he howls in pain. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. It was one of those things where I had to pause before I could laugh because I did that really just happen? <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, honestly, I'm not going to lie. This reminded me of another anime, more modern, with One Punch Man, where a ninja attacks Saitama and Saitama just gently punches him in the balls with his fist. <laughs> it felt almost like the exact same scene to me. I was like, this is very reminiscent of that. I mean, for a lot of this, uh, for a lot of Dragon Ball so far, Goku's kind of felt like One Punch Man, so I can see the similarities. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We do and... get the battle kind of kicking up a notch as Murasaki and Goku trade another blow with the power pole and the and the katana and Goku's power pole is able to actually break Murasaki's sword. And so he's looks disarmed at this point and he challenges Goku to hand to hand combat since he no longer has a weapon, but Murasaki's a coward. And so once Goku lets his guard down, kind of like what you were talking about earlier about Goku, letting his guard down and getting tricked. As soon as Goku puts his weapon away, we see Murasaki pull out a boomerang blade. I'm not sure what the name of that weapon is, but he hurls it at Goku and Goku is just barely able to dodge it. But while Goku's looking at Murasaki, the weapon kind of rebounds back around, catching Goku in the back of the head and knocking him to the floor. Yeah, Goku is KO'd here and it it shows the type of person that Murasaki is uh, and it. It's kind of fun getting to see Murasaki be ridiculous, but also be strangely competent in a kind of lethal way here. And I think that kind of moves us forward to the next episode. Yes, episode 38. Be afraid, the art of division. And immediately we see Goku pull himself off the ground, so that tension's gone. Um, <laughs> he's angry, Yes, too. he's very irritated with Murasaki. And he just launches himself at the cowardly ninja who begins fleeing for his life. Yeah, Murasaki throws shurikens at Goku. Uh, they end up hitting the tree. And this time, Goku grabs the shurikens and chases Murasaki into the little dojo or little building in this on this floor. And Goku decides to throw the shurikens at uh, Murasaki, who in turn flips these tatami mats off the floor to block them and blocks them over and over and over until the very last one where he runs out of mats and gets stuck right in the forehead. <laughs> For a second, I was just like, is there going to be long-term damage here? Because I feel like that results in long-term damage. I, I know I wouldn't want to take a shuriken to the forehead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
but we we cut over briefly to a scene with the village chief in a prison cell. So this is our first time getting a shot of the the village chief. Uh, but it, it's a very brief scene as we move back to Murasaki using a smoke bomb and water shoes to escape from Goku over the river. Yes, and this river is full of deadly piranha that will eat anything that they can, well, they can get their mouths on. And we get this, I guess, comical scene where Goku can't hear Murasaki talking about how the the water is full of these dangerous fish. And so he walks behind a bush and grabs a giant dead fish and throws it into the water so that way Goku can see just how dangerous that water is because why does Goku need to know that? Just let him go in the water. Come on. Yeah, it is kind of a weird, <laughs> like, why'd you give away your ace there? But because Murasaki told Goku it was dangerous, Goku decides, I'm going to jump this river. So, and he does. <laughs> yeah, he actually makes it look easy. But I think it's at this point that Murasaki is hes kind of getting mad that Goku's beating him at every game that they play. Every, I guess, opportunity that Murasaki has to kind of one-up Goku Goku wins. And this is where, at first, I thought we were seeing kind of an age-old technique as Murasaki channels key into himself, and we see four more Murasakis step out from behind Murasaki. And so now it is a five Murasaki versus Goku battle. My notes actually even say multi-farm technique times five. <laughs> I saw that. I was like, oh, wow. I was like, I didn't realize that was the first one. Yeah, yeah, but we'll find that that's not quite the case here. However, each of the Murasakis is fighting with a unique weapon. We have a one with a katana, one with a gun, one with a blow dart, <laughs> one with kunai, and one with a... I forget the exact name of the weapon, but it's basically a chain and scythe. Oh, yeah, and... Yeah, all of them have different weapons. Um, I put my money on the gun kata guy. I think that is the best martial art form. And at this point, Goku thinks that this is just a variation of the after image. And so his immediate thought is, all right, I have to figure out which one of you is the real one. Yes, and Goku's struggling to fight five Murasaki. Uh, they, I mean, all of them are attacking him kind of relentlessly. And he uses the after image technique himself to actually combat the multiple, the multiple, I almost gave it away, but <laughs> uh, the, oh, you know what? I think they actually do reveal here. It is about this point. Yep. Yeah. That it is not a, what we thought to be the multi-farm technique, but they are five Murasaki brothers. And I think uh, he says that he, Murasaki himself is the oldest. Uh, but Goku then uses his afterimage technique to best the brothers, uh, KOing three of them in quick succession, uh, kind of distracting them with the afterimage, and then taking down a fourth brother using, uh, I, I think, still using the afterimage, or maybe just even just beating this guy's butt. <laughs> I will say when he explained that, for some reason, I still didn't believe him when he said it. I was like, no, this is multi-form. <laughs> I was like, I don't believe you. 
I wasn't quite sure either. I was like, is he, is this like another ploy? Is he fucking with us again? Like, what is going on here exactly? We, we but... did get a brief Ginyu-esque pose, though, when the five brothers first appeared, so. Oh, that's a good catch. I did not notice that. That's really fun. So all of them kind of standing there kind of triumphantly, and then we get the goofy background or whatever. So that that definitely stood out to me because at this point, it's just a, it's a staple in Dragon Ball. It really is. I'm glad that you caught that because that's a lot of fun. But that turns into Murasaki number one uh, running away from Goku. And he moves up to this cage where it, it seems like it's going to be his maybe his last ditch effort here. But he releases some sort of creature. And before we get to see this creature, we get a brief scene of uh, Sano's father returning home. And he's kind of giving us a little bit of foreshadowing here about some sort of monster inside of the tower. And I, we get to see just the reveal of this creature that looks, I mean, you can't. It's Frankenstein's it, monster. It is yeah. exactly Frankenstein's monster. It is not trying to be anything else. It is Frankenstein's monster. And this is our introduction to Android 8. Yeah, whereas you could argue whether or not Metallotron was designed after the Terminator. Or inspired, you know, like there were some cues taken, but it's still its own thing. This time, yeah. no, that's Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, there's no argument here. <laughs> uh, and I think that reveal kind of takes us to the next episode. Yes, which is episode 39, The Mysterious Artificial Human number 8. And we see this hulking Android 8 after walking out of his cell, just bulge his muscles, I guess, and just break the chains that kind of were on his neck and arms. And he's given the order by uh, Ninja Man, Murasaki, uh, to attack Goku. <laughs> I wish I could remember real names. <laughs> Ninja Man uh, does, in fact, tell number eight to beat up Goku. <laughs> and uh however while number eight is clearly demonstrating his strength by breaking the chains on himself he says that he does not want to hurt anyone yeah he he does not like violence he'd rather not hurt goku and this just enrages murasaki and he screams at android eight for his defiance and android eight even apologizes we're getting this distinct impression that Android 8 is actually maybe a pacifist, but a super nice Android. And we get this reveal that there was a bomb implanted inside Android 8, and he will be destroyed if he does not follow orders. Right. And this is going to feel familiar to anybody who's watched Dragon Ball Z, but... Murasaki basically runs away from explosion distance with the remote in hand and gets ready to blow Android 8 sky high for disobeying his orders. However, Goku is not going to let this happen, and Goku attacks Murasaki, knocking the controller from his hand. Yeah, and with the controller knocked away and destroyed, actually, it's things are looking safe at this point. And Goku decides to just knock Murasaki clear to the other side of the room. And we get this brief scene with Goku and Android 8 kind of becoming friends in this 
really brief moment of encountering each other. Right. Yeah. I mean, Goku, uh, I guess in a way, they both saved each other's lives with Android 8 not wanting to fight Goku and then Goku destroying the controller to Android 8's bomb. Yeah. And, and kind of from, from there, we forward. get Goku going off to the next floor, kind of leaving Android 8 to go be free and do whatever he wants. And we find out that the next floor is actually going to be a labyrinth. And Goku takes about three seconds to get lost in the labyrinth. And we find out that General White is actually controlling the walls in this maze, making it that much more difficult to leave. Right. And fortunately for Goku, Android 8 followed him up here. And Android 8 knows the layout of this floor. So he's going to help Goku find his way to the next floor. We find that this is uh, technically floor 4.5. And while Goku and Android 8 move their way to the stairs that exit this floor, Android 8 finds a wall blocking their path. And he's, he's kind of confused, saying like, hey, I know the layout of this floor. And so he goes around to another way that he thinks might lead them to the stairs and he finds a wall in the way again. Uh, and we know that general white is moving this wall between the two pathways. So Android eight tells Goku, all right, let's go back the other way. And as Goku goes back the other way, Android eight splits off and they both go down different paths so that the wall cannot block both pathways. Yeah. And we get this Goku and Android eight, come across the, the door kind of transitioning from blocking one side to the other. And they're both able to just barely slip by and actually make it to the other side of the labyrinth and to the stairs that lead up to the next level. And it was around this time while Goku and Android 8 were traveling together, Goku just kind of came up with a nickname for Android 8 and just started calling him Aider. And kind of this having a name brings joy and delight to android 8 we see him kind of smile and enjoy having his own name i really like this exchange because it not only humanizes android 8 but it also i mean when somebody gives someone a nickname like that it's kind of a clear indication of a friendship so it it also indicates that ader now has a friend which is really cool yeah, and it plays into the kind of pure heart of Goku, where it's, no, that's not a name. I'm going to give you a name, just how simple that is. Right, yeah. I mean, it's it's simple, but it's it's important. It's impactful. I, I really like this exchange. This show can be wholesome at times. <laughs> <laughs> at times, when we're not getting Goku Wiener, but, you know. Yes, but anyway, speaking of Goku Wiener, actually, I don't think there's any in the next episode, but we there's are not, off. surprisingly. <laughs> we are, well, we're in the winter place, so you, it's hard to draw that small. That's so right. We're, we're off to episode <laughs> 40. Uh, now what, Goku? The hair-raising Booyan. And we get, let's see, oh, did I skip one? Uh, no, this it, is the one. Shoot, I forgot how fast this kind of escalates towards the end here. Yeah, it, it goes pretty quick. I think the only thing that we see is that Goku basically, uh, I think a couple of details we might have skipped is that yes, Goku basically bypasses the fifth floor and uh, goes up to the command room on the sixth floor and runs into General White. 
at which point Goku demands that General White give up the village chief or release him. And as Goku steps into the room, General White activates a trap door, dropping Goku and Ader into the fifth floor, which I think that is where kind of our episode 40 begins. That is, you're absolutely right. I forgot that at the very end, Goku and Ader get dumped into this kind of trap floor is the, what I'm going to call it. Yeah. And so now, what Goku, the hair-raising Booyan, episode 40. Um, <laughs> Goku and Ader, they tumble to the fifth floor. Bones are scattered throughout the dimly lit room. And a wall is raised to reveal a giant, scaly, pink, pink meat-eating monster with fanged teeth and a long green tongue. Booyan is the monster's name. Yeah, and... This creature's interesting. They Goku tries to attack this creature as it's revealed kind of eating bones and other monster or other pieces of uh creatures in its floor. Uh however, Goku's attacks don't seem to work against its elastic and stretchy body. It just seems to absorb all of his attacks. Yeah, and we get Goku kind of getting puzzled for a moment over the fact that he can't really hurt this monster. And not only does the monster have a good defense in its blubber or elasticity, um, it's able to channel electricity in its antenna, and it actually fires it at Goku. Reminding me a lot of when Roshi did it to Goku in the martial arts tournament. And Goku is kind of lifted up in the air, and he's being electrocuted, and his hair is going in all directions. And after being electrocuted for, well, way longer than any normal human could survive... Goku drops to the floor and is kind of dazed and kind of out of it at this point. Yeah, and it, with Goku stunned like this, Buyan grabs Goku and shoves him into his giant toothy maw, trying to eat him. And Goku, however, with inhuman strength, pushes the jaw open of Buyan and is just barely able to hop out of the mouth and escape death's grasp. That blew my mind because they actually showed him chewing on Goku before trying to swallow him. I was like, oh my God. I, oh, well, no, Goku's fine. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of frightening. But I mean, I, I mean, we've seen Goku get shot, I guess. So I guess the teeth don't do much. <laughs> But after fighting his way outside of Buyan's massive maw, uh, the battle just continues, and Goku's dodging these electrical attacks, and he's getting pushed back, and he just is sort of running out of options. So he kicks it over to his tried-and-true solves-all-problems move, the Kamehameha wave, and we see Goku charge it up, and he blasts it at Buyan, and once again, this attack just bounces off of the incredible mass of Booyan colliding with the wall and just kind of not really harming Booyan at all. Yeah, I like this a lot because I think this is the first time we've seen the Kamehameha be ineffective. So like you said, this is kind of Goku's go-to win button almost. And this is the first time where it's not going to give him the fight. He has to come up with something witty and intuitive to figure out how to solve this problem. Yeah. And 
uh, Goku kicks his brain into overdrive and he thinks about where he's at and the freezing weather. And that's when he comes to the conclusion that he's going to break a hole in the room and let in the freezing weather to freeze the monster he's fighting. Yeah, he's basically thinking about how his body, Buyan's body, is too uh, stretchy and elastic. And if it were more stiff, that his punches and kicks would have more effect. And so the cold does, in fact, begin to freeze Buyan's body, Goku using Aider as kind of cover from the cold. And eventually, as Buyan is literally frozen, Goku gets out of Aider's jacket, kicks Buyan, jumps back into Aider's jacket, and Buyan begins to crack and fall into pieces. This idea, all I could think about in my head the entire time I was watching it was the dbz a bridge where goku thanks his brain and then his brain says yo welcome (laughs) (laughs) that's perfectly appropriate here one thing that i wanted to talk about with this is i think this might be goku's first confirmed kill (laughs) i don't know why it just made me think of call of duty (laughs) kill confirmed kill confirmed (laughs) But yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, that's a big deal, right? Where Goku's, I mean, he's a 12 year old boy. I don't think he's killed anyone up to this point, or at least. It depends on how intelligent you consider Booyan, because that's going to be the one thing, because Goku, he's killed and eaten a wolf so far, and he'll eat fish and he's eaten other creatures, but. Lots of animals, right? Yeah. Is Booyan an animal? That's a good point because Booyan probably falls somewhere in between almost. That weird gray area. Yeah, but also in addition to that, while Goku has killed lots of animals, it's almost always to eat them. And he's not killing Booyan here to eat him. I mean, I guess he's killing Booyan in self-defense, but still he's never in any other time has he killed anything in self-defense as far as I can remember. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I guess when you're a young mountain man, maybe you just don't deal with killing things as a normal person would. (laughs) Yeah, it it might not even come into his mind the same way that it would uh, normal people in their level of morality. I also briefly wanted to touch on the fact that I'm not sure that this is the case, but Booyan to me feels like a precursor to Majin Buu. I was going to bring that up. The weird, well, wasn't there even a um, a weird monster thing that they fought inside um, Babidi's castle thing or whatever to try and get more energy out of the Z fighters? They fought, uh, you might be thinking of Yakan, the one yes. that absorbed the light and the energy. Uh, um, are you saying that I think they killed that pretty unceremoniously as well. So when it comes to the weird in-between monster things, I think Dragon Ball has a track record of just blasting them and uh, going on with their day. Yeah, yeah, and that's fair. This one just felt very similar to Majin Buu to me. I mean, even its name is Booyan, and then it's, it's this kind of like pink amorphous blob thing where its body absorbs attacks, not quite the same way as Boo, but very similar can't be hurt, um, right? Like, that's the whole thing. Big, fat, pink, can't be hurt. 
yeah yeah but yeah you're right i mean there are a lot of throwaway monsters in dragon ball in general so it's i mean it could be completely unrelated but i mean you're right first confirmed kill for you know you're you're not consuming it you're just killing it because you have to yeah and this kind of gets goku and android 8 out of the situation goku uses his head to break back up into the sixth floor <laughs> and then uses the power pole to levitate uh android 8 back up onto the sixth floor as well yeah and while goku's pulling Ader back up we see a cowardly general white shoot goku in the back but Goku is immune to bullets at this point, so just kind of irritates Goku. But for all intents and purposes, it looks like Muscle Tower. It kind of looks conquered at this point. Yeah, yeah. Goku's gone through. He's beaten pretty much every floor, and this is him kind of confronting the final boss on the final floor. And I think that takes us to the next episode. It does, which is episode 41, The End of Muscle Tower. And the episode begins with General White being backed into a corner by Goku, but White is refusing to give up. So White, after discarding his very restricting shirt, challenges Goku to combat. And yeah, I think anyone who's seen Goku fight pretty much understands that this should be just a, a pretty easy just breeze through another general. And at the beginning, it kind of is. But General White is kind of crafty, and he's looking for a way out. He's looking for a way to keep up with Goku. And this is where we see White actually get his hands on Goku's tail. Yeah, it, it it's a fun scene because General White is a big, beefy dude, and Goku's a tiny little kid. And Goku takes a, a tiny little tap at General White's shin, and General White is just in howling pain. And so General White uses... Uh, another moment of weakness from Goku grabbing his tail. Uh, and we all know that Goku's tail basically grabbing it turns him into a helpless lump. And so General White hurls Goku into the wall, definitely hurting Goku, but no longer having his tail grabbed. Goku gets up ready to fight again. Yeah, but this is another example of Goku letting his guard down. There's no reason General White should have been able to get his hands on Goku's tail. Like, it's... Ugh. <laughs> it's yeah. the lesson that Goku will never learn. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, all the way through Dragon Ball Super, I guess maybe with Whis's training, Goku will finally learn. But <laughs> it's it's pretty funny to see it so early in his life and in the story, and even so late in the story as well. Mm -hmm. Yep, and at this point, we see Goku now pissed off, kind of knocking General White just around the room. It's very clearly one-sided. And when Goku's about to give the finishing punch, we see Ader asking Goku to show some mercy, to show some restraint, and we offer peace at this point. And Goku decides to show restraint for the General. And we see the General kind of admitting defeat and, you know, kind of feigning that he's given up. But really, he's actually hiding a gun kind of in his back pocket and just going along for the ride at this point. General's got a gun. <laughs> exactly. And he's not afraid to use it. That's right. So the general 
takes Goku and Ader to the cell that's holding the village chief, uh, opening the cell. And as the village chief goes to leave the cell, General White grabs the chief, points the gun to his head, and now has the chief as leverage so that he can escape. Yeah, and there's this kind of brief negotiation between General White, Goku, and Ader, where there's a point where uh, Ader says, no, like, let's not hurt him, let him leave. We don't want him to take the uh, chief's life. And then the chief responds with, I don't care. I want you to rip his bones from his body. I don't care what happens to me. There's this kind of, uh, I guess, violent side to the village chief that you don't expect for just a moment, though. Then the, chief, that was... then the chief remembers that he actually does really like his life. Yeah, I thought that was hilarious. I was like, oh, damn, this chief is <laughs> hardcore. It's like, I love it. I love this man deserves to be chief. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty awesome. But then he, the chief backs down and Goku basically says, you know, if you're going to hurt someone, hurt me, don't hurt the chief. And General White tells Goku to turn around if he wants to be the hero. And Goku says, now what? And the general shoots Goku in the back of the head. Yeah, and this is one of those ones where if if you're going to get shot by a bullet, that's the one that should probably sting, I guess, or stay. And we see Goku get just hit really hard, and we get that kind of, you know, that pain shot of Goku actually really feeling it this time. And we see Goku kind of tumble to the ground face first. And it's at this point we see Ader kind of clench his fists, and we see him kind of getting enraged. And as the general goes to fire the finishing shot on the now-on-the-ground Goku, Ader actually steps in front of it, taking the bullet for Goku. Yeah, this is super interesting, because Ader, up to this point, has not done anything physical. He's just kind of been helping Goku, uh, more so on the mental side of things, but he takes the bullet, saving Goku, and then proceeds to punch General White through the wall, launching, <laughs> launching him into oblivion. I mean, this man's got to be dead, right? Like, there's no, <laughs> there's no way, there's no way he's alive after that. I mean, the bright side is that you know it was a painless death. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> <laughs> like, if he wasn't turned to vapor from the punch, he'll definitely turn the vapor from the impact. Yeah, one hundred percent. And so, I mean, this is so interesting to me because in a way, Ader stopped Goku from doing the exact thing that Ader did just moments after it. But Ader was motivated by by revenge, by trying to protect his one and only friend. Like, it, it's such a strange. I feel like this episode plays with themes in such a strange way because we're here for this. We're here for the fighting. We we want to see the fighting. Mm -hmm. And honestly, Ader continually saying like, no, don't fight. It was kind of getting on my nerves a little bit. Uh, but then Ader just 
murders this guy. Yes. So finally, he learns the lesson that fighting is good and you should always do it. And that's always what I take away from kids. Yeah, always fight. Never back down. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So, I mean, it's, I think the lesson's supposed to be something like, um, uh, always be prepared to fight or whatever. It's pacifism isn't always the way or something like that. I feel like there was supposed to be a life lesson, but I'm not sure. It's something along those lines. Yeah. And I would agree. I actually put a note comparing this to Dragon Ball Z Abridge in the Cell Saga when Gohan is fighting against Cell. And Gohan explicitly states, at least in the abridged version, that he's a pacifist and cell hates this and is doing everything he can to get Gohan to fight him. And Gohan eventually has to fight because his friends are going to die if he doesn't. So there was from, at least from the Dragon Ball Z bridge, there's very much a parallel here with Ader having to learn that same lesson. I didn't even think about that, but yeah, there is, there's definitely a, a very strong similarity to these two moments. And I mean, it also makes Ader a more interesting character, right? Like he has that capability inside him somewhere, even though he refuses to use it almost at every turn, he, he can do it. It very much humanizes him again, which I really, really like. I also wanted to point out here too, that as Ader is like going to attack general white general white is calling him a monster which i thought was super interesting with this kind of the human... pot calling the kettle black sort of thing exactly <laughs> i was like oh that's so good it is very good i do love it it's oh it's fun it's a lot of fun and i think that's what a lot of the adventure has been up to this point is just it makes you think a little bit. It turns some tropes on their heads. It's and that's exactly what this has done right here. Yeah, yeah, 100 percent. I think that pretty much takes us to the next episode. Here, um, so Did the end of this episode starts kind of the the wrap up. Um, Goku is once again immune to bullets and stirs back to life. Ah, yes. And we get. Ader and the village chief carrying Goku from the tower, but on their way out, we see Ader using his robo fists to tear apart the base of the tower, causing it to collapse. And I think this is a very symbolic moment because it kind of represents the, the end of the red ribbon reign in the area. Yeah. And uh, this is, I'm glad that you remember this part because this is important, not only for Goku, but also for Ader because while Goku was the one who largely defeated the the bosses or the majority of the army, Ader not only delivered the final blow to General White, but Ader also took down the tower where he was created and basically chained up forced, for his whole life. Yeah, yeah. Captive and kind of forced to do or at least potentially forced to do harm to others. I like the symbolism of it. Love that they did it. And I like that it was Ader who did it because it's, I do think with his kind of snapping and sticking up for Goku and defeating the general, it was kind of Ader also overcoming his own inner demons. So there was just a lot of symbolism all at the same time. Yeah, it's it's great writing. Akira Toriyama here did a fantastic job with the theming. And I, I really like that part. Uh, but we basically... And on that note, with muscle pa muscle tower destroyed, 
And I think that moves us forward to the next episode. Then. Yes, which is episode 42, Imminent Danger. Go for it, Hachan. Or Hachan. I don't know how you say that, but that's what it is. <laughs> yes. And this, I think, is going to be our last episode that we cover. And this is going to kind of tie up all the loose ends here where the village chief, Goku and Ader, arrive at Sano's house uh they meet up with sano and the the two sano's parents uh goku basically gets a chance to eat food recuperate a little bit and the village chief offers for both goku and Ader to live in the village with them but they both have their reservations about this yeah it's um i believe also revealed that um, Ader's been holding on to the Dragon Ball that the Red Ribbon Army has been searching for this whole time, and he had planned on giving it over to them, but once he found out that after they retrieved the Dragon Ball from the area, they were going to destroy the entire village and probably murder everybody before they left. And so Ader just hid the Dragon Ball and remained in his chains this entire time to keep everybody alive. That's right. And that's an important detail, too. I'm glad you brought that up because that's kind of the deciding factor for why the village chief basically says, Ader, you're a hero. Like, you basically kept the village safer than it would have been had the Red Ribbon Army gotten the Dragon Ball. And so you are welcome to live here. But both Goku and Ader declined the offer, Goku stating that he's going to continue to seek the four star Dragon Ball. And Ader saying that he can't live there knowing that he has this bomb in his chest that could potentially endanger everyone in the village. Yeah, and it's revealed that there might be somebody who's able to to fix the bomb in Ader's chest. It's an extraordinary doctor named Dr. Flap who resides in a nearby mountainous kind of area and he would be able to remove the bomb, or so they think. And Suno mentions that she's visited Dr. Flat before and that she can guide uh, Ader and uh, Goku to where Dr. Flap lives. And so they decide that in the morning they're going to saddle up and all head off in that direction. Right. Also, Goku's dragon radar is broken. That's an important detail because they state that uh, maybe Dr. Flap can help with the dragon radar as well. And so as Goku, Ader, and Suno travel to Dr. Flap's, we find that Murasaki is still alive and has risen from the rubble of Muscle Tower. And he is tracking our heroes on their way to visit Dr. Flap. Yes, and he's breaking out some of his old techniques. Well, not very old, but the techniques <laughs> we know, such as the hiding in front of a tree with the blanket. And it works so well that Goku's not even able to see through his disguise. And so we get a scene with Goku relieving himself on Murasaki as he's hidden up against a tree. He can't see through it, but he can certainly piss through it. <laughs> I did enjoy that when he removed the blanket after Goku went away. Uh, his pants were actually steaming from the pee on them i thought that was a great touch <laughs> it was a really good detail honestly uh murasaki was pissed off eh, eh. <laughs> uh, anyway so the three make it to dr <laughs> flat 
And yes, so they basically get to Dr. Flaps and uh, Murasaki, uh, while Dr. Flaps says that he can remove the bomb from Ader, uh, Murasaki jumps into Dr. Flaps' room uh, having a private conversation with our doctor and he threatens Dr. Flap to steal the Dragon Ball from Goku as well as kill Goku. I believe it's also around this point that we find out that uh, Dr. Flap was actually the one who installed the bomb on Ader under threat that if he didn't do it, that I believe he and the village would be destroyed. Yes, and I think Murasaki even reveals that Dr. Flap was the one who created Ader. And so Dr. Flap was working with the Red Ribbon Army. However, he did not reveal that information to our heroes and however at that point sano goes to check on dr flap uh kind of interrupting the powwow with murasaki and murasaki uses sano as leverage threatening her to get dr flap to cooperate yeah and so dr flap kind of reluctantly goes down to where goku is now napping and steals the two Dragon Balls and a little knapsack, knapsack off of Goku's hip. And on his way out of the room, he kind of gets caught, but he shuffles out of the room quickly and hands over the Dragon Balls over to Murasaki. But upon receiving the Dragon Balls, he takes his hand off of Suno's mouth, who screams, causing Ader to come crashing into the room. Yes, and... Ader barges in. Murasaki basically knows that he's no match for Ader and Goku. And so Murasaki dips out of the, the house, uh, jumping onto his snowmobile. And Goku is, goes in hot pursuit, chasing Murasaki on foot in the snow through the mountains. And the snowmobile proves to be faster than Goku. And so Goku charges a... Kamehameha that he fires at Murasaki and missing, but not missing the mountain behind <laughs> Murasaki. Yes, the Kamehameha strikes the top of the mountain, causing a massive explosion. And we get a colossal avalanche that starts crashing down towards Murasaki, who quickly 180s and attempts to outrun the avalanche. But after some actually pretty slick dodges around trees, um, is eventually swept up into the avalanche and comes crashing down to just in front of Goku. Yes. And so Goku digs through the avalanche, finds Murasaki and finds the pouch that Murasaki stole. And we find that Goku has recovered his lunch. <laughs> I mean, honestly, Goku only cares about the four star Dragon Ball, so... But lunch? You don't steal lunch from Goku. <laughs> yes, the two balls were, in fact, two rice balls in the pouch. And we get a quick shot of the actual Dragon Balls back with Sano's parents in their house. <laughs> yes. So at this point, the Dragon Balls and Goku's lunch are safe and sound. And from here, we get a shot of Ader kind of on the operating table being worked on from or by Dr. Flap. And after a successful but almost unsuccessful uh, removing bomb surgery, 
Ader no longer has the bomb implanted in his chest. Right. And Dr. Flap does not reveal that he was the one who put the bomb there, nor does he reveal that he was the one who created Ader. Uh, and he also says to Goku that the dragon radar is too sophisticated for Dr. Flap, which is crazy that Dr. Flap has created this android life form and he can't work on this dragon radar. Like, holy shit, that thing must be complicated. <laughs> yes. Oh, dear Lord. So, yeah, I can build a robot. I can remove bombs. I can do all this other crap. But fixing a radar mm -mm, can't do it. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, it's it's designed to locate these magical orbs. So, I mean, I don't know, man, magic technology, that combination is way over my head. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave it to the uh, the super doctors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so Goku takes the bomb, still having it in hand from the surgery and chucks it into the mountains as we kind of be wrap up our episode. And none other than Murasaki finds the receiving end of this bomb. <laughs> Take that, ninja. <laughs> you and your stupid fishnets. That's right. No fishnets for you anymore. Oh, as shoot. Murasaki gets team rocketed to wrap up this episode. <laughs> oh, geez. I'm not going to lie. This was this was actually a lot of fun. Um, there's even a couple wholesome moments, uh, other than some of the episodes being a little chaotic, honestly, I really enjoyed this, this bunch of episodes. Yeah, I, I was really excited going into this arc because I knew that we were getting the red ribbon army fight again, similar to what I said before, I like getting to see Goku fight just dozens of soldiers i mean he's a super powered kid and he's just fighting these this armed military and it's it's a blast it's a ton of fun but then we also get the trope of him having to go up these literally go up floors to <laughs> defeat boss after boss after boss to get to the final boss and release the damsel in distress that is the old man village chief <laughs> i mean it scratches all the right itches it's it's super fun it's relatable because we've all played a video game or or seen a uh <clears throat> i believe you called it a shonen anime yes you got it <laughs> so it's everything just makes sense it and it does it all correctly it's for the most part it keeps a nice light sense of humor throughout the entire thing and which doesn't make sense because it should be a more serious tone, right? But the whole time, it's almost like Goku's having fun. With the exception it's, of a couple spots. Yeah, it's strange. Because you can feel the tone is... It's more serious than the the arc with Pilaf, 100%. And you get the, the sense that these soldiers are legitimately threatening like the town and the other people around. And so the soldiers are treated with more respect, I would yes. say than the Pilaf gang. But I would agree with you that Goku's tone doesn't change much. Goku is still this child who is powerful beyond belief. And he's just, he's having fun in a lot of ways. However, he is also here for a purpose. He's here to save the village and he's here to save the village chief. And he also 
ends up getting the additional goal of saving Android 8. And so his his actions have more weight here, I would say, than just like trying to find the Dragon Balls. That's true. And I think I will say, let me correct myself a little bit. Goku makes the tone lighter with the way he is and the way that he acts. So it is it is a super serious situation, but that doesn't make Goku suddenly become serious, right? He's always kind of having that that childhood mentality of I'm just going to push through it. I'm going to do the right thing and that and there's plenty of a uh, comical like his head getting smashed against the wall and then you get like the instrumental dropping down from the walls and stuff like that. So it they take what is definitely a very serious situation and they add like a light spin to it. I think that's a good way to describe it. I think Goku offers a lot of the levity in this serious situation. And it, I think for me, I, I like that balance. I like that they are slowly shifting the tone of Dragon Ball from being kind of this comedy slapstick, goofy cartoon to having more serious tones and absolutely having more serious themes in it with friendship with uh, threatening people's lives with actually dealing with murder with people getting killed with i mean just bigotry with you know people showing this favoritism or a lack of favoritism towards like android 8 and treating him as less than a person even though goku just treats him like any other person admittedly uh the red ribbon army treats everybody who's not the red ribbon army like they're not people (laughs) yeah that's a good point and the Uh, village is almost like a a town that's under occupation right now they are experiencing i guess an invasive force that's got them completely under boot and heel yeah and i mean goku is kind of the the savior for the whole village uh so I really enjoyed this arc. I think that there are a few things that you can maybe nitpick about it. Um, I felt like, honestly, I felt like the pacing was pretty good. The fights didn't drag out too long. I think most of the fights lasted an episode. uh, And most of the conflict resolution came relatively quickly. And I think my only, my only big complaint is I feel like I didn't get that big payoff final, like final boss battle. Like, Booyan didn't feel like the final, final boss to me. That's a fair point. Honestly, the the bosses almost tapered downward. I, I guess we're kind of, like, up and down because mm-hmm. we get Metallotron, and then we get Murasaki, who's definitely down. Uh, and then we go back up to Booyan and then kind of down to General White. So it's a little bit of a roller coaster ride as to... Mm-hmm how powerful or how serious the the bosses are but even then that's i mean i still really enjoyed it so it didn't didn't kill anything for me it just would have been nice to just have a a big final battle that maybe lasted a couple episodes or something like that i mean then again we're also coming off the the real big high that was goku and master roshi battling because that was fantastic that's a fair point i guess the other part to consider though too is that we are not yet finished with the Red Ribbon Army. We That's did true. finish. We finished the Muscle Tower, so the Muscle Tower didn't give us that kind of climactic ending. But we've got a lot of Red Ribbon Army to cover still. 
Okay, well, all right. Well, Mike Sybin's back up. <laughs> so, yeah. I really like this arc. I'm excited to continue the Red Ribbon Army arc. And one of the things that I really like about this arc, too, is that for our Dragon Ball Z fans, this has huge ramifications for the future of Goku and the Z fighters moving forward. That's true. Yeah. The, I mean, gosh, the Red Ribbon Army is still mentioned in all the new stuff. So <laughs> it's pretty exciting I mean, to see it all. Even with the new movie coming out in the next couple of months, the bad guy for the new movie is the Red Ribbon Army. So oh, that's fantastic. All right. We're once we get deeper into the Red Ribbon lore, I can start criticizing all the new stuff. It's going to be great. I can't wait to complain <laughs> like a professional. Yeah, yeah. We'll actually be able to give some constructive uh, criticism. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But did you have any other thoughts or feelings about this chunk of the Red Ribbon Army arc? No, very happy with it. Um, I'm looking forward to the next chunk. Yeah, yeah, I feel the same way. I'm excited to move forward with the next chunk of the Red Ribbon Army. But with that said, I think that's it for this episode of Instant Transmission, where we discuss everything Dragon Ball. This has been your host, Todd. And Dayton. Be sure to join us next time as Goku and Balma butt heads with the Red Ribbon Army to collect those magical balls and are confronted with a powerful new enemy in General Blue. Will Balma's true love show himself within the Red Ribbon Army? Is Blue the color that does Goku in for good? How does Krillin keep his head so shiny? <laughs> Find out a next time. And to all our fellow Dragon Ball fans, stay safe out there and remember to keep rocking the dragon. I hate the underhanded sword trope. Oh, my God. Ninjas love underhanded swords. <laughs>